It's now time to focus on some of the most vitally important topics in this project, the military, war, and defense. It may seem odd to have left what is vitally important until near the end, but remember that this project prioritizes according to those things average people can most readily and extensively change right now. So while it also provides, uh, provides larger long-term goals which are perfectly relevant and highly important, toward which we can indeed work and would not for a moment be disappointed with any progress. The project nevertheless begins with exercising individual rights and responsibilities like pulling your children from public schools, focusing on local politics and local debts, and things like that. Now, this is also not to say that we believe no headway can be made in these larger areas today, right now, or that no practical steps for average people exist. Uh, this also is not true as we shall see later. Now why do I say this topic is so vitally important? Because in general, historically speaking, no tyranny can rule without military force. And conversely, when a central government can access a standing army, then not even long traditions or well-entrenched legal systems can prevent the tyrant's whim. Further, such a military power soon grows intertwined with every other branch of tyranny that we've covered in this project, and will cover, and that includes education, welfare, political power, special interests, taxation, money and banking, manufacturing and trade, courts, and of course the other executive power functions. In turn, each one of these areas becomes molded and shaped, and in some cases, grows dependent upon a large imperialistic standing army. So the lust for a standing army transforms the entire character of a nation from liberty to a centralized state. And as we'll see further, further about that in the second part of this topic. While to today's mind, it presents a nearly radical picture. The biblical teaching on war and the military are the only proper place to find foundations for this topic, national defense in a free society. Indeed, the biblical direction is so opposite from what we have known and what we have come to accept as normal that if it weren't God's own word, many Americans would refuse even to tolerate hearing it for a second. But hear it we must, because change we must. That biblical picture is found primarily in two passages of Deuteronomy. That is the laws for kings, which are in Deuteronomy 17, and the laws for warfare, which are in Deuteronomy 22. So first let us simply read the laws for kings stated in Deuteronomy 17 verses 14 through 20. Quote, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers shall you set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, 
that his heart may not be lifted above his brothers, and that he may not turn uh, aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. While not all of these criteria explicitly refer to the military, obviously, they're still proper to review here. First, the law stipulates that rulers should be, quote, from among your brothers and not a foreigner. In other words, to use a catchphrase commonly heard today, the ruler must be a natural-born citizen. The U.S. Constitution exhibits this very biblical idea, which was a response in part to the fact that King George III at the time was not a native Brit, but he was from the German House of Hanover. Moreover, he had these alliances with the continental banking interests, and when Parliament wished further to tax the American colonies, he basically remained indifferent to their wishes and the colonists that he was sworn to defend. Uh, so the U.S. Constitution returned to this pre-1066 Anglo-Danish standard of kith and kin. The word king, after all, is related to the English word kin, which has an ethnic reference. It means from the same country and family. Okay? With this quality among a leader, there cannot be, or without this quality, there can't be any true loyalty to the people. And while this sounds like a side matter, it's not. A ruler who identifies with the people uh, almost as a family will fight to defend that people and their liberties. But a ruler, on the other hand, that does not have that loyalty will more likely be less interested in their defense. Okay, it's the difference which Jesus taught about between the shepherd and the hireling in a slightly different context. And he says this, quote, The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, but he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming, and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He says that the, flea, uh, uh, the hireling flees because he is a hired hand and does not care for the sheep. That's in John chapter 10, verse 11 through 13. Notice how the issue manifests, especially in times of defense and protection, when the hireling's own life and goods may be at risk. The king's self-interest can pervert society in other ways as well, society. And the law, therefore, forbids him to acquire three categories of things, horses, wives, and wealth. Now, it may not be apparent to the modern uh, uh, student immediately, uh, but these things all relate to foreign policy, and, and therefore the military and more. First, horses. In those days, horses were an offensive weapon. They had great range, they had quick strike ability to compare to other things, and they were thus a means of military conquest. To acquire many horses was to have a large standing cavalry ready for an expansive empire. God did not save his people to be a large war state. Horses were the favorite tool of large war states like Egypt. They were, uh, there were other means there that were sufficient for defense. Okay, but it means no permanent standing professional army. A standing army is a perpetual temptation for a king to go impose his will by force somewhere. Uh, if not abroad in military conquest, then it will be at home uh, upon the people in a tyranny, or it will be in both. Okay? This is the very reason God punished David, for example, for taking a census. That was the first step in raising an army in 2 Samuel 24. Compare Numbers chapter 1, where the numbering of the people was in reference to those who were able to go forth to war. 
Numbers is the account of God's holy army in its first days in the Holy Land. Okay? For David's sin of militarism, God plagued the entire nation of Israel. The law against multiplying horses had a second part, and that was forbidding the king from causing the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. As it says, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. This is on its uh, surface a law against foreign arms exchanges, but it's much more than that. Two things stand out. First, the king is not to cause the people to do this act. The Hebrew verb return is specifically in the causative form. In other words, the king shall not cause them to return. That is, he shall not force them to return to Egypt. Okay. This is not a literal blanket prohibition against visiting or even migrating to live in Egypt. After all, Jesus did this with his parents by divine prompting in Matthew 2, verses 13 and forward. Rather, it's speaking of a king forcing his people into service, presumably as mercenaries or even as plain slaves for Egypt in exchange for horses or whatever else. This is made very much clear when we look at the second aspect, and that is that God's command that the people shall never return that way again. By that way, God's not talking about the literal road to Egypt. Again, Jesus' flight to Egypt makes this understanding impossible. Uh, by that way, God is speaking of the slavery that was involved in the people being forced into state servitude. Now, how is this so clear? Ironically, it's from something that's in a way unclear in the text, and that is the verse clearly says that God told the Israelites this command. Since the Lord has said unto you, you shall never return that way again. And yet it's very difficult, if not impossible, to find that command anywhere in the Pentateuch. Uh, it doesn't show up anywhere in Scripture. Uh, so what we have is possibly could have a record of, of, of a prohibition of a return to Egypt that was never recorded. Uh, it is possible that God told them this beforehand and that revelation was never recorded. But it makes much more sense if we understand it in reference to the slavery of Egypt. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Of course, uh, that's Exodus 20. This is the preamble to the Ten Commandments and the First Commandment. Here God makes it clear that His relationship to them as their God was one of a deliverance from a total state which was slavery. Egypt here is equated with slavery and God brought them out of that. And He subsequently commanded them to have no other God but Him, that is the God of liberation and deliverance from that slavery. In other words, the people were not to return to the way of Egypt in the judicial sense of the word. Now, this understanding is further increased when we read the sanctions of Deuteronomy 27 and 28, where God detailed the blessings Israel would enjoy if she remained faithful in the land, as well as the curses the nation would suffer if they disobeyed. The very last sentence of the list of curses makes this point. Quote, the Lord will bring you back in ships to Egypt, a journey I promised you should never make again, and there you shall offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but there will be no buyer. Deuteronomy 28, 68. 
Should Israel disobey, they would be returned to the slavery of Israel. Not necessarily literal Egypt, by the way, for when the nation did disobey, it was carried captive into Assyria and into Babylon, but certainly physical bondage, even if it was self-imposed. So the law against horses is, in its fullness, a law against offensive armies, standing armies, imperialism, and conscription, all based in God's condemnation of salvation by conquest, by man, by slavery. All of these things are manifestations of humanism and idolatry, of man trusting in man, of man exalting man, of man serving man, of man being forced to serve man. Secondly, the king was not allowed to have many wives. Now in today's culture where we have the strange mixture of a general repugnance of polygamy in conjunction with easy divorce and the growing acceptance of homosexuality among their politicians and leaders, it may be difficult to comprehend why a king should be prohibited to have many wives, but the reason is actually quite simple. In the ancient days, and really right up until modern times, kings would engage in marriages as means of political alliances, and so polygamy was often intertwined with foreign policy. Again, we have an allegiance issue, just as with the requirement that a king come from among the people. Okay, if he's married to many foreign women, then his heart is susceptible to compromise in favor of her people against his people. The same thing's true of multiple marriages or women, even of his own people. There is, uh, in that case, an increased competition for his heart, his will, his capacities, and that further detracts from his ability to do his job as a civil ruler. So we see these things, these problems developing in Solomon's womanizing in 1 Kings 11, where it says his heart was not wholly true. Thirdly, the king was also not allowed to have much money. That is, it says, excessive silver and gold. Now, this is a prohibition against a large public treasury and certainly against a virtually infinite public treasury, something like the Federal Reserve System. Again, this is about loyalty. A king with independent wealth can have a divided heart as he has no need to trust or depend upon the people who put him there. The issue, however, is more, uh, more importantly, is about power. A large treasury has the power to do just the opposite, to make large portions of the public dependent upon the government. It can also be used to buy those war toys and standing armies and to wage wars. In fact, there's a powerful connection between money and power and war. As Kikoro said, the sinews of war are infinite money. God's people were not to be a people of conquest. Their king should not have the tools of conquest, including excessive funds, and certainly not a central bank with fiat powers. The final verse of this passage tells us that king, uh, the king is to make himself a personal copy of God's law and to have his copy approved by the priesthood, uh, for accuracy at the very least. Uh, he must read in that law daily and must, most importantly, must obey it. And in all of these things we see a king who is not a self-centered, power-hungry leader, but rather a man who first and foremost is submitted to God's word. And that word continues on to tell us exactly why that king should do so, so that he remains in the fear of God with humility and equal station with his constituents to preserve justice according to God's law 
and to maintain peace and prosperity in the land for the long term. The goal here is a state or civil society that is small, it is restricted by law, it is not equipped for offensive conquest, and no standing army, and thus no uh, temptation to wars of imperialism or expansion or nation building or anything like that. Not having a large treasury and thus not capable of acting as a welfare state or a warfare state. It will have a public and constant emphasis on the ruler not having his heart lifted up above the people, thus no elitism, and no sense of government being the highest leaders of every facet of life, for they are not to be political messiahs or saviors. They are there for civil justice according to God's law only. Now let's talk about raising an army. The second relevant passage covers both the laws for militia and for waging warfare, all of it's found in Deuteronomy 20. The first part of this passage covers the raising of a militia, verses 1 through 9. And it says this, When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to the battle, the priests shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart be faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who, who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to give you the victory. And then the officers shall speak to the people, saying, Is there any man who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man dedicate it. And is there any man who planted a vineyard and has not enjoyed its fruit? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man enjoy its fruit. And is there any man who has betrothed the wife and has not taken her? Let him go back to his house lest he die in the battle, and another man take her. And the officers shall speak further to the people and say, Is there any man who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go back to his house, lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. And when the officers have finished speaking to the people, then commanders shall be appointed at the head of the people. Now there are several principles involved here. First, the militia is raised in a defensive situation. The Israelites are first confronted with the armies of their enemies before they begin this process. The principle here is simply that a militia is raised for the cause of repelling invaders. Secondly, an army is religious in nature, for war is religious in nature. It is God's judgment on the earth, as we will discuss later. So uh, the first person to speak to the assembled people, which is not yet an army, is a priest. And the army is to be motivated by and finding their primary courage in the fact that God is with them. Now right there, if the people would already know for a fact that God does not approve of offensive wars, if they had been assembled for such, this motivational prayer would have been an obvious act of public hypocrisy. And the people, not the government, or the priesthood, not the uh, uh, top-down authority of the officers or anyone else. The people had the right, uh, the final right to decide that. So this prayer is a final reminder to the assembled men that ultimately God decides the outcomes of battles and they should consider that call uh, that is before them 
in that light. Thirdly, based on this fact of God's sovereignty in the affairs of men and uh, building on God's prohibition of offensive wars, God leaves that final decision of joining the fight up to the individuals themselves. This is apparent in uh, the militia raising process that follows. The military was, was uh, purely voluntary. Anyone who had any unfinished business, whether it was property, whether it was business, whether it was family, that person was given multiple clear notices and they were allowed to leave. Now able-bodied males of 20 years old were called and by implication they were expected to fight in any just cause. But the exit door was broadly open for a wide scope of reasons. The civil rulers were not allowed to make exceptions for anyone. They were required by God generally to let those who chose to abstain from the fight freely leave. And if the latitude had not been given widely enough already, that being the land and the vineyards and property, wives, however you want to put it, the law mandated that anyone who was simply fearful could freely leave the militia. And that's what it says. Is there any man among you who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go. These freely leaving measures provided several benefits to the whole scenario. In case the militia had been organized for offensive or dubious purposes, most soldiers would take those opportunities and the campaign would likely fall apart. When given a choice, average people will not fight under conditions like that. And yet in the case of a legitimate cause, the law provided every possible out for the fearful, the distracted, the worrisome or otherwise distracted soldiers to be removed from the scene. This protects uh, both those who left, who would not have fought wholeheartedly anyway, if at all. It also protects the willing soldiers who would not want to have been stuck in the trenches with someone they have to fight beside that they have to rely on whose divided loyalty or, who or his lack of courage would have put them in jeopardy. The end result is, if the cause is just, the most willing, able, focused army possible. Now consider Uriah's unwillingness to leave his brethren in battle, uh, even at the behest of King David. That's pretty good evidence of the spirit in 2 Samuel 11. At this point, the militia was raised. Uh, consequently, by the way, if the cause were unjust, and clearly so, there would be great difficulty on the part of the bloodthirsty, tyrannical government to raise much of a militia at all. A general lack of willingness would drive all able-bodied uh, males readily to accept those various outs, and they would leave little more than a meager force standing there to serve this corrupt uh, regime. Finally, after all objectors and abstainers left, then and only then were the commanders appointed. Note that the military leaders had to be appointed, for since there was no standing army, there would be no lifetime career military men. There would, of course, probably always be veterans around, skilled in battle and administration from past wars, if they, had, if they were, uh, but these were supposed to return to the private sector when battles were over. Uh, should another just cause arise, those guys would probably, though not necessarily, be appointed as commanders again. In a free society, there would probably also exist private institutions uh, providing combat training, skills, uh, uh, martial arts skills during peacetime, thus keeping military skills and knowledge in the land sharp during peacetime, yet unavailable as a political resource. 
What is clear here is that God's society has no allowance for a standing army and none for military conscription or a draft. Indeed, military conscription was simply another type of state slavery from which God had delivered Israel and which he forbid their kings to practice, as we saw already. When Israel finally rejected God in choosing for themselves a king like other nations, military conscription was one of the curses which God said that tyrant would bring upon them. That's in 1 Samuel 8, verses 11 and 12. Instead, God's society protected peace, freedom, and in giving his people every chance to leave a potential militia, he left the final judgment of any particular war's justness with the individuals, not with the government. That is decentralization at its finest. Contrast this with the modern American mentality in regard to the military and war. Not only have we had a draft in more than one instance, we have a tradition of ridiculing objectors, calling them cowards, traitors, un-American, and in some cases even passing laws against detracting from a war effort or even from discouraging enlistment. From just what we've seen so far, this attitude can only be judged as ungodly. And keep in mind, God is no pansy when it comes to the issues of war and judgment in the earth, but he nevertheless has a higher standard for conscience and for freedom. We have more often than not gotten this standard exactly backwards. Whereas he gives men every opportunity to abstain from a battle, and he welcomes those, praises those who would leave to do so, we often force people to fight upon threat of civil penalties or at least ridicule those who object. This, is, uh, this practice is to place nationalism over godliness and thus it is to make an idol out of one's nation or armed forces. The second part of this passage in Deuteronomy 20 verses 10 and following covers the laws of warfare. Intertwined in this passage, there are several aspects pertaining only to Israel's special system in the land of Canaan. Uh, and yet, since we have in there also these general principles of waging warfare, we're just going to focus on those. But before we can understand these rules of warfare, we have to understand their theological foundation in the laws concerning judgment against false witness. This is very important. Uh, these laws appear in the very previous, this is the exactly previous chapter of Deuteronomy. It says this, quote, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests, and the judges who are in office in those days. These judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity, it shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Deuteronomy 19, 15 through 21. While not apparent at first, there's a profound connection with the rules of warfare. 
War is God's judgment upon whole societies and nations, and it involves the ultimate sanction of God's judgment in the earth, and that is the death penalty. For there to be a sanction of armed defense, especially to the point of killing the aggressor, lawfully applied, there must first have been an aggression that justifies it. Out of that principle comes the entire theory of just war. Uh, any nation that acts with deadly force is by implication saying to its target, you have committed an offense which justifies God's judgment of the death penalty. Now at this point, the laws against false witness provide a check. Just as with individuals who bring false accusations, any nation aggressing against another without just cause is making that implied justification falsely. An unwarranted aggression is a false declaration of God's judgment, which means also that those in charge of the decision to aggress have set themselves up as false prophets, we may even say as false gods. But God's law against false witness in regard to the death penalty state that the bearers of such uh, false accusations themselves should receive the penalty in question, and in this case, death or subjugation for the threat. This is in part the theological justification for waging war and against an aggressor nation. But unlike cases involving individuals, national disputes have no higher court other than God himself to decide the evidence in the case and to punish the false witnesses. National leaders must deliberate among themselves and then if the attack is unjustified, choose to enact the sanctions against the aggressor themselves. In the end, God will determine which cause was just, and this may very well reflect in the results on the battlefield. Even at the, point, at the point of the defensive attack, however, the Bible calls leaders to offer terms of peace. They must allow for the admission of guilt on the part of the false witness aggressor and then allow the possibility of restitution and peaceful subjugation as opposed to bloodshed. This is a measure to advance peace over warfare. And thus we get to the passage of the laws of waging war. Quote, when you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall, be for, shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. When you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an ax against them. You may eat fruit from them, but you shall not cut them down. Are the trees in the field human, that they should be besieged by you? Only the trees that you know are not trees for food you may destroy and cut down, that you may build siege works against the city that makes war with you until it falls. Deuteronomy 20, verses 10 through 20. So be clear here. The terms of peace proposal is in no way to let the aggressor nation off the hook. They are instead to be forced into restitution and servitude. Now, this doesn't require occupation necessarily, certainly not the level of having local taskmasters. That's not the point. The point is civil atonement for their aggression and the punishment must fit the crime, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, etc. This is establishing a principle of war reparations to be paid by an entire generation of the aggressing nation. It's not a light penalty. 
but it is just and it is to be preferred above the waging of war for the preservation of social, life, uh, social peace and life. Nevertheless, if the aggressor refuses the terms, uh, which would be to persist in declaring the validity of its false judgment, then war and bloodshed are justified and should indeed be carried out as a matter of cosmic justice. But note, by looking at the big picture here, war and bloodshed are acceptable only in defense and only as a last resort. Now the laws pertaining to the trees here sounds kind of obscure and perhaps even obsolete, but just the opposite is true. They have both fundamental theological significance and very real modern practical relevance. The theological significance lies in the significance fruit-bearing trees have for life, stemming all the way back, of course, to the Garden of Eden. The uh, biblical economist Gary North addresses this issue with a very powerful insight. Quote, This law of warfare reminded man that fruit-bearing trees sustain man's life. For this reason, they must not be used to impose man's death. This law makes it clear that holy warfare is not just a means of inflicting death and destruction. It is a means of extending life. Holy warfare is not destruction for destruction's sake. It is destruction for God's sake. There is an element of disinheritance in war, but it is always to be offset by an element of inheritance. The passage goes on to say that the Israelites could cut down non-fruit-bearing trees to make siege works. Of course, those were implements for battle in the days of walled cities. Uh, these days are, are long gone with the invention of gunpowder and its application in the West since the 15th century. Nevertheless, the fruit trees must remain alive today. The Israelites could eat the fruit, but must preserve the fruit bearers. Both, both aspects of this law have modern applications. The, not, the destruction of non-fruit trees is still allowed, and it has benefits in some conditions. For example, defoliants used in jungle war, warfare, certainly allowable uh, where necessary. Uh, nevertheless, fruit trees are not to be cut to make war implements, certainly, but the theological principle of that which sustains man's life has a much broader modern application uh, than the narrow instances in which, I don't know how fruit trees could be made to serve as modern weaponry. The principle means also that crops must be preserved in times of war. Well water, water sources, water systems, livestock, beehives, all other sources of food and health. The doctrines of total warfare and scorched earth policy run completely counter to God's law here. Deaths of innocent civilians, collateral damage, destruction of private property, in general, should be blanket condemned. Medical centers, pharmaceutical plants, should remain protected, so should most factories and businesses. These are centers of economic production that pertain directly to the sustenance of life for many, many people. Those factories, however, that are directly involved in any war efforts, thereby include themselves in the hostilities and therefore give up the protections that are afforded to the sustenance of civilian life. So we've seen the basic biblical ideals for the state in regard to the military, the raising of a militia, and waging of war. Now the student will realize at this point that today we're a long way from these ideals. Uh, but that's not always been the case in American history. In earlier times, we were much closer to some of these biblical doctrines. Uh, 
In fact, in early colonial times, we were very much closer. British citizens, especially those involved in business, disparaged war and wanted a separation of party politics and commerce. Uh, for the hundred years from 1660 to 1760, the uh, eminent historian Charles Andrews tells us this, quote, most, though by no means all, of the mercantilists, that is merchants, tradesmen, and manufacturers, as well as pamphleteers, hated war and the diplomacy that led to war as interfering with the prosperity of the nation, and they resented the influence of party politics in determining any governmental program that affected trade. Those that defected from this view, Andrews adds, were merely a group who wanted to have a war with Spain as a license to raid Spanish plate fleets for gold bullion. These were essentially would-be pirates, and they did not succeed in their desires. Daniel Defoe, the famous author of Robinson Crusoe, wrote in favor of free commerce in 1713, quote, What has trade to do with your political quarrels? And what business have party men with the commerce of the nation. Trade is neither Whig nor Tory, church or dissenter, high church or low church. If parties come to govern our trade, all our commerce will be at an end. Another pamphleteer under the name of Thomas Merchant, Esquire, wrote of, quote, peace and trade, war and taxes, or the irreparable damage of new trade in case of war. So this desire to separate political power and commerce helps preserve the biblical principle of the king deprived of a large treasury, which applies to parliaments as well, by the way. As soon as parties realize they can keep themselves in power by promising handouts or advantages to special interests, then the corruption takes over and the incentive, uh, incentives for war mount. And thus they should not be allowed any recourse that affects trade, pro or con. The biblical mindset was prevalent, even if it was primarily originating on the British side in colonial America. The same was true in regard to volunteerism in the militia. In 1641, the Massachusetts Body of Liberties was the first legal code established in the colonies, and it was written by a Puritan minister. It outlawed military conscription. Quote, no man shall be compelled to go out of the limits of this plantation upon any offensive wars which this commonwealth or any of our friends or confederates shall voluntarily undertake. This continued for 45 years until it was usurped by Charles II and was done again later by James II. Nevertheless, colonists were still not regularly compelled to fight for Britain, even in their own colonies. In cases where local militia aided the British regulars, they were referred to as a secondary class, provincials. And yet these provincial militias were enough of a threat that the first thing the British tried to do at the outset of the American Revolution was to disarm them. In fact, it was Britain's planned raid on their respective armories that led to the battles of Lexington and Concord. During the American Revolution, recruitment was likely expected, but still had a voluntary element in it. In one example, the famous Lutheran minister who was a friend of George Washington's, uh, his name was John Muhlenberg, gave a rousing sermon on the, quote, time for war. And at the end of it, he disrobed to reveal his own military regalia and encouraged men to enlist on the spot. He signed up 300 people. This was the common view up to the time. American military was by recruitment of a militia in response to a just cause. And thus an historian of the military reminds us, quote, 
standing armies are a relatively recent invention in the history of warfare. Many of the American framers, having learned of and observed the militaristic imperialism in Europe, lauded individual arms and opposed standing armies on principle. For example, in Federalist, Federalist 46, Madison lauded, quote, the advantage of being armed which the Americans possess over the people of all other countries, notwithstanding the military establishments in the several kingdoms of Europe, which are carried as far as the public resources will bear, the governments are afraid to trust the people with arms. During the Constitutional Ratification Convention in Virginia, George Mason recalled how Britain had aimed to, quote, disarm the people. That was the best and most effective way to enslave them. This statement came on suspicion of the standing army, which was proposed in the Constitution. He feared that it would replace or overpower the state militias. The Nationalists' response, which was uh, supposed to alleviate this fear, could only do so by proposing that state militias and private gun ownership would remain the status quo and would be enough to deter the takeover uh, of any state by a national army. Noel Webster argued back, quote, before a standing army can rule, the people must be disarmed as they are in almost every kingdom of Europe. The supreme power in America cannot enforce unjust laws by the sword because the whole body of the, of the people are armed and constitute a force superior to any band of regular troops that can be uh, on any pretense raised in the United States. The British politician and reformer James Burgh, whose work was very popular in the colonies, influenced Jefferson, wrote in his book Political Disquisitions, 1774, he said this, quote, those who have the command of the arms in a country are masters of the state and have it in their power to make what revolutions they please. There is no end to the observations on the difference between the, the measures likely to be pursued by a minister backed by a standing army and those of a court awed by the fear of an armed people. No kingdom can be secured otherwise than by arming the people. The possession of arms uh, is the distinction between a free man and a slave. Even Alexander Hamilton, besieged by the anti-federalist complaints about a standing army that has been proposed in the Constitution, uh, himself proposed in Federalist 29 a militia training program and individual possession of arms. Quote, if circumstances should at any time oblige the national government to form an army of any magnitude, that army can never be formidable to the liberties of the people while there is a large body of citizens, little if at all, inferior to them in discipline and the use of arms, who stand ready to defend their own rights and those of their fellow citizens. This appears to me uh, the only substitute that can be devised for a standing army and the best possible security against it if it should exist. Now, unfortunately, as we shall see, Hamilton did not truly believe this, nor did he intend to practice it once he got in office along with his Nationalist Party. The Anti-Federalists remained closer to the older colonial view and greatly feared a standing army. And we've already heard from Mason in Virginia. Brutus in New York also held this view uh, and would also fall uh, for the Nationalist-Federalist response. He warned that the standing army was already planned by many of the Nationalists and would become inevitable should the Constitution pass. Here's what he said. Quote, the idea that there is no danger of the establishment of a standing army under the new constitution is without foundation. 
It is a well-known fact that a number of those who had an agency in producing this system, and many of those who it is probable will have a principal share in the administration of the government under it, if it is adopted, are avowedly in favor of standing armies. It is language common among them, him quoting, that no people can be kept in order unless the government have an army to all them into obedience. It is necessary to support the dignity of the government to have a military establishment. And there will not be a wanting a variety of plausible reason to justify the raising one, drawn from the danger we are in from the Indians on the frontier or from the European provinces in our neighborhood. If to this we add that an army will afford a decent support and agreeable employment to the young men of many families who are too indolent to follow occupations that will require care and industry and too poor with, to live without doing any business, we can have little doubt but that we will have a large standing army as soon as the government can find money to pay for them and perhaps sooner. Another writer, Sentinel, uh, had a similar fear of a broad military power given to Congress. He wrote this, speaking of Article 1, Section 8 of the proposed Constitution. Quote, This section will subject the citizens of these states to the most arbitrary military discipline. Even death may be inflicted upon the disobedient. In the character of a national militia, you may be dragged from your families and homes to any part of the continent and for any length of time at the discretion of a future Congress. And as a militia, you may be made the unwilling instruments of oppression under the direction of government. There is no exemption upon account of conscientious scruples of bearing arms, no equivalent to be received in lieu of personal services. The, military, uh, the militia of Pennsylvania may be marched to Georgia or New Hampshire, however incompatible with their interests or consciences. In short, they may, be, they may be made as mere machines as Prussian soldiers. The state of Pennsylvania being populi, uh, populated largely by Quakers and other conscientious objectors to war saw the same concerns addressed in a report of the minority's dissent in their convention. Along with several other changes to the proposed constitution, that minority proposed that, quote, as standing armies in the time of peace are dangerous to liberty, they ought not be kept up. The dissent also warned that a standing army may be used to enforce the collection of taxes and to enforce any laws it creates from which even the majority of people dissent, and this would be, quote, inconsistent with every idea of liberty. We'll see an example of these concerns coming to fruition in our next section. The report went on to warn, quote, for the same force that may be employed to compel obedience to good laws, might and probably would be used to wrest from the people their constitutional liberties. The minority, minority certainly did not trust the convention. It went on to say, quote, the framers of this constitution appear to have been aware of this great deficiency, to have been sensible that no dependence could be placed upon the people for their support, but on the contrary, that the government must be executed by force. They have therefore made a provision for this purpose in a permanent standing army and a militia that may be subject to a strict discipline and government. Luther Martin, who had been a delegate, addressed the Maryland Assembly in regard to the proceedings of the Constitutional Convention uh, that he had witnessed. Quote, it was further observed that when a government wishes to deprive their citizens of freedom 
and reduce them to slavery, it generally makes use of a standing army for that purpose and leaves the militia in a situation as contemptible as possible, lest they might oppose its arbitrary designs. Nevertheless, he continues to reveal this concern, and many like it were steamrolled by a single majority vote on the floor. John DeWitt of Boston saw the constitutional grant of power for a standing national army as the beginning of the subversion of state militias, and all defenses of that power were but cover for the greater plan of centralization. But it needed to start as only an apparent small grant of power, for, quote, they are aware of the necessity of catching Samson asleep to trim him of his locks. And he added, quote, It is asserted by the most respectable writers on government that a well-regulated militia composed of the yeomanry of the country have ever been considered the bulwark of a free people. And, says the celebrated Mr. Hume, without it, it is a folly to think any free government will have stability and security. It is universally agreed that a militia and a standing body of troops never flourished on the same soil. Tyrants have uniformly depended upon the latter at the expense of the former. No, my fellow citizens, this plainly shows they do not mean to depend upon the citizens of the states alone to enforce their powers, wherefore it is their policy to neglect them and to lean upon something more substantial and summary. The principle that the militia should be decentralized, local, and composed of yeomanry of the country parallels the biblical ideal that rulers should be from among their own people. And if they are not, they have less interest in the land and the people that they are supposed to defend. The Federal Farmer, another writer, recognized this problem and thus warned, quote, that all regulations tending to render this general militia useless and defenseless by establishing select corps of militia or distinct bodies of military men, both are instances of federal army, not having permanent interests and attachments in the community to be avoided. In much earlier essay, the same writer expressed, as did many of the writers on both sides of the argument, that the Constitution would lead eventually to a civil war. The federal arm, uh, farmer argued this uh, could happen in one of two ways, and a national central army would be the key factor in one of them. He wrote, quote, No position can be truer than this, that in this country, either neglected laws or a military execution of them must lead to a revolution and to the destruction of freedom. Neglected laws must first lead to anarchy and confusion, and a military execution of laws is only a shorter way to the same point despotic government. In fact, the Declaration of Independence itself states that one of the colonist grievances against George III was that he, quote, has kept among us in times of peace standing armies without the consent of our legislatures. This is one of the very reasons America declared independence to begin with. Nevertheless, despite the few dozen grievances listed, the colonists followed the biblical principle of making war as a last resort, making numerous appeals for peaceful redress to both the king and the British people. Quote, in every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. Nor have we been wanting in attentions to our British brethren. We have warned them from time to time of their attempts, uh, of attempts by their legislature to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our immigration and settlement here. We have appealed to their native justice and magnanimity. 
and we have uh, conjured them by the ties of our common kindred to disavow these usurpations, which would inevitably interrupt our connections and correspondence. They too have been death to the voice of justice and consanguinity. We must therefore acquiesce in the necessity which denounces our separation and hold them as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war, in peace, friends. Now this principle and the discipline to apply it exhibit strongly the reformed Christian heritage, so much of which the early Puritans brought with them to this land. John Calvin himself had urged that the use of war should only be a last resort. Quote, if kings must arm themselves against the enemy, that is the armed robber, let them not lightly seek occasion to do so. Indeed, let them not accept the occasion when offered unless they are driven to it by extreme necessity. For surely everything else ought to be tried before recourse is had to arms. Calvin's colleague Pierre Viret was even more tenacious on the subject. He called war a sickness and said, quote, There is nothing which Christians should be more wary to employ, nor which is less suited to their profession. Distinguished Professor Robert D. Linder notes how V-Ray, quote, denounced those who make their living manufacturing military equipment and munitions, for it was pursued in view of profit via the shedding of blood. The resulting military industrial complex, he argued in so many words, uh, then had an interest in creating and sustaining more and more wars. It magnified the differences between peoples so that, quote, hateful, ambitious, greedy people who hoped to profit from the war, end quote, increased their chances. He considered the wars of religion as largely products of such avaricious greed. While he believed in the doctrine of just war, he also thought it should be used only as an absolute last resort, for even just wars have unwelcome consequences. These beliefs are, of course, merely extensions of the laws of kings and the laws of warfare taken from the scriptures we've already studied. Uh, there were to be no standing armies and no large treasury from which the king could draw to fund a war. And every measure was to be taken to avoid war when necessary. Now, these theological principles held by the early American colonies helped them retain much of the spirit of peace and reasonableness. While certainly not developing a fully biblical view of military and war, the colonies were certainly much closer than America is today. But those early principles were compromised already at the Constitution, making even some of the grievances of the Declaration of Independence just 11 years prior seem like a, a hypo, a, appear hypocritical to many of our ancestors. In the years that followed, the Civil War and the subsequent Progressive Era, uh, just for starters, the principles were more and more abused. And we will, of course, cover those abuses in the next section as we cover how these ideals of our freedom were lost and further compromised. <music>